How about now? Sort of. Yes, perhaps. Good. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you all this morning um, on this beautiful Lord's Day, and I really mean beautiful day. Um, it is a wonderful, wonderful day today, and uh, it's an honour and a privilege to come before you again to deliver the Word of God uh, to you this morning. Um, what I might like to do, uh, and I know we don't normally do this, actually I don't think I can remember the last time we've done this, but throughout church history what has generally happened is that there have been two occasions in which the congregation has, has stood during a service. It's been obviously during the singing of, of praise and, uh, and also of the hearing of the public reading of the Word of God. Um, in the same way that we stand to, to sing to God, uh, what congregations did was they would stand to hear from God, not not deifying myself, I'm talking about hearing from the Word of God. Um, and so I might like to invite you this morning to do that. You're under no obligation to do it. Um, feel free to stay seated, but I would like to give you the opportunity uh, to stand and to rise as we hear from this passage out of Luke 9. So if you would like to, you're more than welcome to. So we're reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and well, others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and of the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. May you be seated. So today, ladies and gentlemen, we will be zooming in on the southern ridge of Mount Hermon in northern Judea to the town of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, if you have your Bibles, it would be, uh, I would invite you to open and, and read along with me. I'll also have the overhead operating to the best of my ability. Um, but we'll be seeing a time in which uh, Jesus and his disciples are passing through a, a region of concentrated pagan worship, namely the, the pagan worship of the Greek god Pan, the god of shepherds and of fertility. And we see that amidst this backdrop, There is a profound profession to the deity uh, of Christ. We see a stirring speech and the forthgoing commands that our Lord has given to his disciples and to all those who would follow after him. I will now revisit uh, verses 18 to 20. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. 
it becomes evident, it becomes evident through uh, this passage and as well as other passages where crowds are around Jesus that uh, the vast majority of them do not know who he is. They know that he is uh, a Galilean. They, they know he's from the town of, of Nazareth. Uh, it's occasionally mentioned that he's Joseph's son. Uh, but they really do not understand the concept that this is the Son of God incarnate. There are very few. In fact, this is really the first profession to the deity of Christ that we find, particularly in Luke's Gospel. And so it is evident that by their sin and by their pride, the people of Judea did not know that their Messiah, the one who they had been long awaiting, had actually come to them and was dwelling among them. Now, you notice that in those first two verses, it was commented that oh, some people say that he, that he were John the Baptist sort of reincarnate. By now, John the Baptist had, it was dead. Um, he had been beheaded by Herod. Some say that, oh, you were Elijah or, or one of the other prophets of old who, who has come back. Um, and of course, John the Baptist actually was a, a, a type of Elijah. That's sort of why they're making this semi-correct connection. Uh, Jesus mentions that he was Elijah uh, metaphorically in spirit because he was one preparing the way for the Lord and for the coming of the Messiah. Um, but Peter, however, by the grace of God, by the illuminating grace of God, he understands. He gets it. We see here that he professes uh, in what is one of the clearest statements to the deity of Christ in the New Testament, uh, that he is the Christ of God. In, in Matthew's account in chapter 16, you might recall uh, a more comprehensive account. But who do thou say that, that I am, Peter? And, and he replies, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. And so we see first and foremost that it is the illuminating grace of God that even reveals to us the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Without, without his illuminating presence and work in, in my mind and in my heart, I would not have the knowledge to be able to come up here and preach to you. But it is by grace alone that we even comprehend the very words of God, as is evidenced here. And we see that also this topic of the Christ of God, this is the same Christ who has been foretold since Genesis 3, you recall, uh, what God said to the serpent that the seed of Eve, the one who is to come, will crush the serpent's head only after having his heel trod, uh, bitten. It has been foretold in uh, the accounts that we have around Noah, Abraham, Isaac, through to David, through to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all of them. Every part of redemptive history, everything we find in the Old Testament is looking forward to one thing and that is the coming of the Christ of God, the coming of the one who would redeem his people. And so this has been looked forward to. And it might also be worth noting that the coming of Christ was not a plan B. I know, I know sometimes uh, it may appear or as I've even heard from unfortunately people with PhDs talk to me about how you know this was sort of the plan once things happened after the fall and I want to show you that, that the coming of Jesus was not a plan B. It was not uh, it was not a, a hopeless attempt that was sort of slapped together by the triune God in some way to salvage the wreck after the fall that he didn't know about. That's not the case. This was 
the plan. There was, God does not have a plan B. He doesn't have uh, backdrops. He doesn't have safety nets. Every part of creation was foreordained and predestined to lead to this, the coming of the Son of God himself to save his people. Everything preceding and everything following revolves around this event. I'll revisit now verses 22, uh, 21 to 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is exactly what I was just talking to you about. This is what it was all about. I mean, Jesus even told them many times. You may also recall later in Luke's Gospel uh, when the disciples are at the empty tomb of Jesus, uh, the angel says, do you not remember that he told you that he would die and on the third day be raised? And in the, and in the, the Daniel paraphrase version, like, oh yeah, of course, yes, yes, yes. Um, this is what it was all leading to. This is what I've just been talking about. It was all leading up to the fact that the Christ must be rejected by his people. He must be set outside the gates as one of the goats of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He must die separate from his people for his people. And so this is what we see was the mission of Christ. In verse 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We see here a, a rather logical progression. We see that in order to, fo- to follow Christ, one must deny him or herself and take up their cross daily. It's A plus B equals C. It's fairly straightforward. But it also is one of, one of the most deepest passages in what I'm reading to you today. To the concepts of denying yourself, taking up your cross in order to follow Christ. I'd like to first discuss the concept of denying oneself. Counting the cost of actually taking up your cross and following Jesus is a prerequisite to doing such. And therefore, denial of self is a prerequisite of taking up your cross. Becoming a Christian begins with a denial of self. That is the inherent nature of what it means to repent. We see that A denial of self is a denial of any inherent ability on your own part to justify yourself before a holy God. It is a denial of any self-righteousness, no matter what level of self-righteousness we may perceive ourselves to have. It is a rejection of man-made structures, man-made systems and religions that endlessly try to claw their way to the gates of heaven on their own will and ability. In fact, denial is actually an acceptance of our inherent inability. This is where denial begins. We also see that ultimately denial of self is a rejection of one's own wicked and sinful nature, the nature that we were born into as ones born into Adam, born into sin, corrupted by an evil heart. It is a rejection of this and it is a denial of Self. That is where denial of self begins. Secondly, to deny oneself is then the continued denial. 
after being saved by the Lord is the continued denial of our own desires, our own inhibitions, our own, our own willingness or over-willingness to want to run life our own way, to do things how we see fit, to do what is right in our own eyes. And it is a continued denial of self and rather a full opening and acceptance to the will of God for our lives. Secondly, the concept of taking up your cross. Taking up your cross. It is first and foremost a joining in union with Christ in his death. It is a joining in union with what was done on the cross, the, the atoning death that he did on our part. It is a joining in union with that. This is both the, the cause and the application of, of self-denial. We are, we, have, we are given the ability by God to deny ourselves because Christ took upon himself the wrath that was due on us. He was our what's called substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute. It was Daniel Thomas who deserved to die the bloody death on the cross and bear the eternal wrath of God. But instead it was Christ who went on that cross for me and took that wrath. He bore an eternity's worth of hell in every literal sense of the word and substituted that for his righteousness which is now accredited unto me as it is with you. That is where uh, the, applica- the cause is. And then the application is that because of such a thing, we are now able to deny ourselves. So it's a cause and effect in and of itself. And this is where the union with death in Christ begins. And furthermore, secondly, taking up your cross with union in Christ is a renouncing of all control of our life. Sort of what I just talked about briefly earlier. It is a renouncing of doing life our own way. This is what it means for Christ to be our Lord. He is our King. The subjects do not rise up against the King and say, well, we really think that it should be going this way. Or we, you know, we'd like to just sort of do this. Can we at least have this little area of our life to run by ourselves? No, He is enthroned at the right hand of the power. He is the one with the majesty and the glory and the honour. He is the one whose will is perfect and consummate. He is the one who is Lord of our lives. It is he who is the Christ. It was Presbyterian theologian R.C. Sproul who once said this, A cross is not merely a difficult life circumstance to be induced. I say endured. It is that, but not merely. Those who witnessed Roman crucifixions knew that to take up the cross meant to renounce selfish ambition and all right to control over one's own destiny. It was a death to a whole way of life. And it was a death. And so for the, for the Christian now, it is a death to the old way of self. It is a death to the way of the world. And therefore a coming alive in Christ to the ways of Christ. And thirdly, the concept of following Jesus, following him. A.W. Tozer, who was an early 20th century pastor and author, once, I think, marvellously noted this. You knew one thing about a man carrying a cross. You knew that he wasn't coming back. You knew one thing about a man carrying a cross. You knew that he was not coming back. I think, I think Dr. Tozer was, was rather spot on for, for three reasons in particular. 
firstly, there's a finality in what was done on the cross. There was no room for improvement. There was no Jesus got 99% of the way and couldn't make that last little stretch. There is a finality both in what was done on the cross and therefore a finality in our salvation which is applied unto us. You recall that Jesus' last words before he took his last breath were what? It is finished. Tetelestai. It's a commercial term in the common Greek of antiquity. Synonymous with paid in full. Jesus made a purchase on the cross. He purchased the salvation of his people. He made a purchase in full. Nothing left over. No sin left unatoned for. No amount of righteousness not therefore credited to his people. And praise God that he is a merciful saviour. Secondly, the reason why I believe Dr. Toza was correct was because the good shepherd never loses his people. He never loses his sheep. Never. We read in, in John chapter 6, the words of Jesus when he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The good shepherd never loses his sheep. John chapter 10, the words of Jesus again. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus does not lose his sheep. There is eternal security for all those who are in him. If it is the living God who, by his own grace and his own power, has saved us through the atoning work on the cross, if it is the Holy Spirit who then applied this salvation all by himself without any help from you and I, then I am more than certain that he can keep us within the union of Christ. If, it is, if the only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary, then I can have an assurance, as can you, that you will never be forsaken by the living God. That you will never slip out of his grasp like sand through the fingers. He will never lose his sheep and there is finality in what was done. Some of you may particularly be asking or, or thinking to yourself, why is it necessary that there is a union with, with Christ? Why is it necessary that, uh, that there is a death to self, that there is a burial in union with Christ of that old self and then a rising in, in new life? Well, we find that Jesus tells us exactly why in the next two verses, particularly verses 24 and 25. For... for uh, for whoever would uh, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? 
I recall um, upon the death of John D. Rockefeller, who was uh, an American oil magnate during the, uh, particularly the, uh, the late 19th century, um, amassed a net wealth of $336 billion, counting for inflation. By far, and by a country mile, the richest man to have ever lived in the United States of America. I recall upon his uh, death, uh, when I was reading the, a newspaper article I came across, um, in which his personal assistant, his PA, was, was interviewed about the death of Mr. Rockefeller. And, he asked, and, and the reporters asked this, this gentleman, what did, he, what, did he, what did he leave behind for the family? What did, I mean, with a guy of this wealth, you would imagine his assets and, and everything in his estate. What did he leave behind? And the one-word response that came from uh, this gentleman was everything. He left, every, he left everything behind. Of all the wealth and all of the assets and the material gain that Mr. Rockefeller amassed, he takes none of it with him beyond the grave. He takes none of it. And so what does it profit us as people if we would seek to ascend to the highest of heights in this world, whether it be in in the corporate world, whether it be uh, in the areas of materialism, whether it be in areas of academia, whether it be in anything. I'm not talking about uh, the value of having goals. I'm not talking about the value of having you know, a plan in life consummate with the will of God. I'm talking about the, 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 the attempt to ascend to such grandeur in this life. It is the inherent itching of, of people to, to want to try and strive to gain and gain and gain for self. And in fact, the, the lesson that the Christian needs to learn is that it is not about the storing up of treasures on earth, it is about the storing up of treasures in heaven. It is not about the gaining of everything we can have, but rather it is the laying aside of our own desires it is the sacrifice of self on behalf of Christ and on the part of others. And this is what we see. We see that whoever would seek to save his life, he will lose it. But whoever would lose his life for Christ's sake will gain. And this is evidenced by every person who's ever lived who has rejected the living God. They would rather attempt to salvage self, whether it be through an attempt to earn their own righteousness or whether it be a flat-out rejection and a lack of care, even if it's a mere indifference. This is the inherent issue, is that those who will seek to save their lives through whatever pursuit of their own decision, they will lose it. But those who lose their life, those who deny self, who say no to their own heart, the one enslaved, and those who then come to Christ without anything to offer, to them will he give eternal life in Christ. And this is what we see here. And finally, in verse 26, we read these words. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels.
This is exactly what Paul is talking about in, in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and then unto the Greek. And this is the, the, the motif that he begins what is arguably his best piece of writing, his, uh, his most profound epistle. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And what shame is there in possessing the truth? What shame is there then in possessing the way of life, the knowledge of the God who redeems and who has mercy and who saves sinners like us? There is no shame in this. Christ was not ashamed. Christ had no issue with even just, just the fact that God incarnate sought to took on our flesh, be born in lowly circumstance amongst animals, to live a meek and humble life and to then be stripped, mocked, scorned, have a crown of thorns, a sign of the fall embedded in his head, to then be dragged the kilometre and a half through the streets of Jerusalem carrying his cross and to then die, nail in pierced upon that tree for all to see on our behalf. Christ humbled himself on our behalf. What shame shall we therefore have in knowing him? We as a local church need to be a people who hold a resolute will to stand for the truth of God. We need to be a people that are willing to not be ashamed, to not be embarrassed, to not cave in and crumble by, at the hand of the opinions of others. We also should not be ashamed of standing for the truth when truth is diluted and or perverted from within the four walls of churches. We need to be a church that knows the truth by knowing the living God and therefore having the confidence in him to stand for this truth. And if I might, if I might say, such a stand begins from the pulpit. It begins from the word of God being proclaimed faithfully and honestly in all of its scope to you, the congregation, whom then in turn have a resolute confidence in such faithful teaching and preaching so as to then stand in your lives upon the word of God in all of its counsel. And in such a time as the one that we are living, in a society and in a culture in which truth is somehow relegated to just relative and in a culture in which uh, God is mocked and scorned and taken to the gallows on every single front this is the time to stand for truth and might I also add in a time in which movements 
amongst the wider Christendom rise, that may dilute, that may twist the gospel, that may give half-truth but not full truth. Just as much, if not more so, do we need to stand on the truth and stand against such things. I want to briefly read to you as I finish an interview to illustrate my point. I recall uh, watching an interview on the Larry King show, which is one of the most popular sort of late night talk shows in the world. And Larry King uh, was hosting uh, one of the well, I'd argue the the most well-known pastor of the largest congregation in the United States, a man by the name of Joel Osteen. If you've been to any Christian bookstore, you may have seen his charming mug plastered across half the books and at least two or three of the bestsellers. And Larry King, in this brief dialogue, uh, was asking him uh, a few questions, and I'd like to read you a bit of the transcript. So Larry King begins with this. Uh, We've had ministers on our program, Mr. Osteen, who have said, you either believe in Christ or you don't. You either believe in Christ, so if you believe in Christ, you're going to heaven. If you don't, no matter what you've done in life, you won't be. To which Mr. Osteen replies, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's probably a balance between, I believe that you have to know Christ, but I think that if you know Christ and you're a believer in God, that you're going to have some good works. I don't know how that begins to answer the question, but that's okay. Um, to, to which Mr., uh, Mr. King replies, what if you're Jewish, like he is? What if you're a Muslim? What if you reject Christ and do not believe in him at all? To which Mr. Osteen replied, you know, I'm very careful about saying who who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I mean, I I don't know. Mr. King then responds, but if you believe you have to believe in Christ, then they're all wrong, aren't they? Is serving him the silver platter on which to answer this question. To which Mr. Osteen replies in his closing statement, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'd believe that they're wrong. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their Hindu religion, but I know that they love God. No, they don't. They hate God. And they reject him. But I, I don't know. I mean, I've seen their sincerity. So, and on worldwide television, I don't know. Give us the men who will stand for the truth, who will stand with Athanasius and with Polycarp, who will stand with Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, who will stand with Whitfield and Spurgeon, who will stand on the truth. Not be ashamed and say, I don't know. Will you? Will you know the living God? Will you stand for the truth? Will you have the resolute confidence in him to stand for him and for his truth? Will you? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, may we join 
in union with Christ. May we know that we have been reconciled through the adoption as sons and daughters of him, ones who were chosen before the foundation of the world. May we remember his sacrifice, the spilling of his blood and the breaking of his body on behalf of his people. And may as we take this communion, assure unto ourselves and unto God that we will go out from this place knowing him, loving him and standing for his truth all the day of our lives. Would you pray with me?